reason. He wrote all of it, and he wants us to understand it, and so far it's been pretty exciting. Today we're in the book of Daniel, chapter 8. Last week we covered the first eight verses, where we talked about the great and the not-so-great, and the vision of Alexander the Great, Cyrus of Persia, in contrast to Daniel, who was great before God. And this morning, in verse 9 to the rest of the chapter, is something I've called a tale of two beasts, and we'll see why in a minute. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we have that great opportunity to begin our week in the right fashion, to say and to demonstrate that our life belongs to you, and to honor you at the very beginning of the week, the first fruits of the week, getting our minds saturated with the things of the Spirit and our hearts charged with your love and your provision. Help us, Lord, as we understand these things, as we look forward to what the future holds, that you are in control. In Jesus' name, amen. There were three men that were arguing about whose profession was the oldest profession in history. And the surgeon said, well, you know, the Bible talks about Eve being formed by God cutting a part of the side, the rib of Adam, and fashioning a woman. So I guess my profession as a surgeon would be the oldest. Just then the engineer spoke up and he said, but if you read a little closer before that, it says that God, when he created the earth, created it out of chaos. And that's the job of an engineer. Just then a politician spoke up and he said, yes, but who created that chaos? Chapter 8 is a tale of two leaders who bring chaos to their world. One is already been fulfilled historically. One will be fulfilled prophetically in the future. But as we go through this vision and all of the visions in the book of Daniel that Daniel had about the future from his perspective, there is, I think, a deeper issue at stake. And the deeper issue is, is your God trustworthy? Or maybe I should rephrase that. We know that God is trustworthy. Do you trust God? There's a story in the early days of this country of a man who approached the Mississippi River to cross it. There was no bridge. It was early winter. The Mississippi River had frozen over. It was ice. He was uncertain if the ice would hold him up. Would it break? Sun was setting. He had to get across the river before nightfall, so he decided to venture out on the Mississippi River, but he went on all fours, thinking if he somehow distributed his weight, he would have less of a chance of crashing through the ice. And so he's out there on all fours, very cautiously moving one limb and then the other. After being about halfway across, he heard a noise behind him. It was a man whistling as he was in a horse-drawn carriage filled with a load of coal whistling as he went across the ice. He had obviously gone before. He knew that it would hold him up. He had no fear at all. What a contrast, a man crawling on all fours and a man standing and whistling as he went across the ice. How are you with the promises of God? Are you standing on them, whistling as you go? Are you standing on the promises? Are you crawling on His promises? 
Or are you merely sitting on the premises, really not doing much of anything? The other night I was um, channel surfing, as we call it, on the television. And I came to one channel that caught my attention. I think it was the Mind Extension University. And they were talking about Christianity and the Bible, and I thought, well, this ought to be interesting. Let's see what they have to say. And they were discussing the differences within Christianity, and there are some who hold to the idea that this book is actually the Word of God. Can you imagine that? There's actually people who believe this book is the Word of God. You can trust it for everything. But then there are those more broad-minded Christians who know better by experience and so on and so forth. And as I was listening to the program, I thought, you know, these people don't know much about the Bible, do they? If they would have studied the book of Daniel, and I think they don't even have a clue, but if they would have studied the book of Daniel, they would be awestruck by its authority. They would be humbled by how God wrote about history in advance. God is trustworthy. A few notable things about prophecy. I think you've noticed them already as we've gone through. There is something we call the prophetic tense. That is, God speaks of a future event in a past tense. And that might confuse you. You say, well, how could he do that? It hasn't happened yet. Well, to him it has. God lives in the eternal presence. God doesn't have a past, present, and future. He's outside of the time and space continuum. And so he can speak of the crucifixion of Christ centuries before it happens as if it was past tense. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, past tense. Yet from that perspective of Isaiah, it hadn't happened yet. Another notable thing about prophecy is something we read about in chapter 8. And that is a type or a shadow in prophecy. What I mean by that is you can have a person or an event that forms a picture, a shadow of what to expect in the future, a model, if you will. For instance, in the book of Genesis, we have Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And that becomes a type of God the Father sacrificing his son on Calvary. And there's some interesting hints in that story. For instance, the very first time the word love is ever used in the Bible, it's used in the story of Abraham sacrificing his son. Isn't that interesting? The first time love is ever mentioned in the Bible, it's of a father giving his son in sacrifice. And it so happened that it was on Mount Moriah, later called the Temple Mount. The very pinnacle of that mountain is where thousands of years later Jesus Christ would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. So it becomes a model, a type. The exodus from Egypt, the deliverance from Pharaoh, forms a type of our deliverance from sin. And then also in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel, we're going to come face to face with a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, a man who's already fulfilled these things in this chapter, but he forms a picture or a shadow of something else, someone else who will come in the future. So I've called it a tale of two beasts. Antiochus and the Antichrist. As we go through this chapter, beginning in actually verse 8, I'm going to scoot back a verse. We're going to look at the vision, the interpretation, and the reaction to the vision. The vision given to Daniel by God. The interpretation 
given to Daniel and the reaction of Daniel. First of all, let's look at the vision, and I scoot back to chapter or verse 8 so we can tie in what we read last week. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. When he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of the one, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew up to the host of heaven. It cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. The place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast down truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? He said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, you've already noticed something already. This book has more horns in it than a zoo. I think you get the point as you go through. I know. Some of you caught that. Just seeing it's a little test to see if you're awake. Now, the little horn that is spoken of in verse 9 is not to be confused with the little horn of chapter 7. Now, don't pull your hair out and go, I'm confused. You don't have to be confused. In chapter 7, a little horn or a ruler comes out of the last empire, the fourth empire, Rome. He comes along with ten other horns next to him. The little horn of chapter 8 comes out of the third empire, the Grecian empire. We discussed that last week. But the little horn of chapter 8 is a shadow of this Antichrist who is going to come, the little horn of chapter 7. So a little bit of a preview. Now there's a a shift of emphasis in chapter 8. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and they're talking along and you can tell a certain thought catches their mind? And they'll be talking, a thought will catch them, and they'll change the subject quickly. And you're sitting there wondering, what on earth is he talking about? Only to have that person come back and tie it all together, and you go, oh, now I get it. Well, Daniel pulls one of these in these visions. Chapter 7, he talks about four empires that will come from his time to the end. Chapter 8, he narrows it down to two empires, Persia and Greece, and how a ruler will come up, and foreshadow or picture the future world dictator. And he ties it all together. Now, I want to tell you something else that is interesting about Daniel and shows a shift going on. There are two languages that Daniel is written in, Hebrew and Aramaic. You say, does that matter? Oh, it matters big time. It's a tip-off by the Holy Spirit, I believe. Chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Chapters 2... At verse 4, all the way to chapter 7, at verse 28, is written all in Aramaic, the language of the captivity. Chapter 8 through chapter 12 goes back to Hebrew. You say, big deal. Oh, it is a big deal. Hebrew is the language of the Jews. Aramaic is the language of the Gentile world. Chapter 1, Jerusalem and its fall is in view. Chapter 2 through the end of chapter 7, the world rulers of the Gentile are in view. 
But chapter 8 through chapter 12, the focus is again on Israel and how the other nations relate to the nation of Israel up until the end times. It's very, very important. When my father was young, he used to build homes. He built spec homes, model homes, and he would often build a tiny little model that fit on a desk or a display to show the people what they could expect when that building is finished so they could get a feel by looking at the model of what the building is going to be later on. And so God gives to us in Daniel chapter 8 a model through an earthly ruler that from our perspective has already happened, been fulfilled, to show what is going to happen in the future. This guy forms a model of a persecutor of the nation of Israel and a world dictator called the Antichrist. Now, you say, why is all this information given? There's a lot of information given in Daniel as to this world dictator. You're going to see it again in chapter 11. Why is so much information given? Well, for this reason specifically. God wants the children of Israel, the Jews, to be prepared so they will not be deceived by a false Messiah. He wants to paint a picture. This is what this false Messiah is going to be like in your future. He's going to act just like this. So don't be deceived at the many false Christs that will come on the scene. This is a true story that came out of Dallas, Texas. An airliner landed at the airport. The baggage handlers were taking the luggage out of the airplane, putting it at the luggage bay. And they found an animal carrier with a dog inside, which is very typical. People will take their dogs, their pets from one part of the country to the other. But inside the animal carrier was a dead dog. All they could think about is, "Uh uh-oh, lawsuits. We killed the dog. So they told the woman whose name was on the tag, they went out and said, Madam, your bag has been misplaced. It ended up at another airport. But don't worry, we'll find it and we'll bring that dog to you. In the meantime, they buried the poor animal, went out and searched the shelters and found a dog that looked just like the dog that had died and put it inside the carrier. Cleaned it all up, delivered it to her house, name and address was on the tag. She opened the door, she looked down, she said, that's not my dog. My dog was dead. I was bringing it home for burial. (laughs) Now what God is doing is painting this picture so that when these people come around, Israel will say, that's not the Messiah. That's not my Messiah. That's a false Messiah. He was predicted. We can tell by his activity and by the scripture that has been already fulfilled, those predictions that have been fulfilled. That's not our Messiah. He's a false one. Now let's look back at the interpretation of this vision. Verse 8 and 9, this male goat, which represents Greece, comes up. The horn is broken. Four notable horns come forth. Now let's look at the interpretation. Verse 15, it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, that's the river where he's seeing the vision, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So I came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. And he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep. 
with my face to the ground, but he touched me and I stood upright. He said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. Covered that last week. It's Darius and Cyrus. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Covered that last week, Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, the Grecian Empire, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Alexander the Great ruled the Grecian Empire. In 323 B.C., June 10th, that large horn was broken. He died, we discussed last week. While he was dying on his deathbed, the obvious question came. They said, Alexander, you know, you're about to kick the buck, and I'm paraphrasing the historical account. You're about to die, man. What is going to happen to your kingdom? One of his last sentences was, Give my kingdom to the strong. Give it to the strong. He died. He didn't define what he meant. There was an argument, a dispute. What did he mean? Eventually, Alexander the Great's kingdom was split into four kingdoms, just like the four horns that came out of the goat after the large one was broken. It was divided up between his generals. Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus took Asia Minor and Thrace. Seleucus took Syria and Asia. And Ptolemy, his other general, took Egypt, North Africa, and what they call Palestine or Israel. But one of those four horns, in verse 9, came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, the east, and toward the glorious land. What land is that? Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground, and he trampled them. Now, any historian, any commentator on the book, Jewish or Christian, has identified this little horn as a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, the eighth in the dynasty of the Seleucids or Syrians that came later on. Let me tell you a little bit about him. In about 175 B.C., Antiochus, the brother of Cleopatra, killed his brother, who was rightful heir to the Seleucid throne, and became the king. He started taking over. He started becoming in charge of Syria, one-fourth of the Grecian Empire. He gave himself an interesting name. 
He called himself Theos Antiochus, Theos Epiphanius. Literally translated, I am God in the flesh. Theos, God, Antiochus, his name. Theos Epiphanius, the manifestation of God. That's what he called himself. He even printed that on coins to be distributed throughout the empire. And I've seen some of those coins. The Jews gave him another name. Instead of Antiochus Epiphanes, they call him Antiochus Epimenes, the madman. Because he so hated the Jews and he sought to destroy them. Keep in mind, as I'm telling you this, this is all history to us. To Daniel, it was yet future. It happened between the Old and the New Testament in the intertestamental period. One of the things that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to do is to make everybody in his empire speak Greek and become a Greek in culture. And so he would go into an area and forbid the religious practices of a people group so that they would forget their tradition and forget their history. Well, it didn't work with the Jews. They were the stubbornest group of people who would worship only their God and be faithful to their God. This posed problems. It all culminated in 168 B.C. when Antiochus told his general, Apollonius, to take 20,000 Syrian troops and march into Jerusalem. He did. He killed, in that single march, 80,000 Jews and sold 40,000 of them into slavery. He took the altar of incense in the temple, got rid of it, erected a statue to Zeus, or Jupiter, which was a desecration, an abomination to the Jews in their temple. Then he took a pig, the most unkosher animal to the Jewish nation, sacrificed it on the brass altar in the court of the Gentiles, and took and spread its juices all over the temple area. The Jews called that the abomination that brings desolation, the abomination of desolation. It has been known that all throughout their history. It happened in the past. Antiochus Epiphanes would not let the Jews have any feasts, forbid them to keep the Sabbath, forbid them to read the scriptures, burned all of the scrolls of the scriptures that he found, forbid the men and the women to circumcise their male children on the eighth day. If you want a historical account of this, you should read First and Second Maccabees. It's not in the Bible, but it is an extra-biblical account of what happened during that time. In First Maccabees, there's the account of a woman, two women, excuse me, who decided to flagrantly oppose Antiochus Epiphany. They wouldn't do what he said. They had their children circumcised, eight-day-old babies. Antiochus found out about it, had the babies killed in front of their mothers, strung around each mom's neck, marched the mothers to the city of Jerusalem, put them on the pinnacle of the temple, and made them jump off to their own death. Another account recorded by Flavius Josephus in 2 Maccabees also, about a mother with seven sons who defied the edicts of Antiochus. What Antiochus did is line up the seven sons, have their tongues cut out in front of their mother, flayed or fried the seven sons on a hot iron skillet, and then killed the mother. He was so brutal against the Jewish nation. Now this series of atrocities continue until God raises up a Hasmonean priest by the name of Mattathias. You've heard of the Maccabees or the Maccabean Revolt? Mattathias started it. 
This is what happened. He was in his village one day in Judea, the village of Modin. The troops came in, set up an image of Jupiter, made everybody bow down and worship the image, forced pork down the throats of the priests. Mattathias would rather die than bow, and so he took out a sword and he killed the emissary from Antiochus and began the Maccabean revolt, he and his five sons. Well, it worked. Eventually, they succeeded in wiping out the Syrians and rededicating the temple. When they came into the temple and they took out the statues of Jupiter, restored the worship, they found but one jar of oil, one cruise of oil that would last only one day to burn the golden lampstand in the temple. They poured the oil in, lit it, and as the story goes, it miraculously lasted for eight days. It has become a feast celebrated every year called Hanukkah by the Jews. The festival of the rededication of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes was overthrown by the Maccabeans. It happened in the month of Kislev. In the New Testament, Jesus celebrated it. It's called the Feast of Dedication when Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Now, there's something else in verse 14. I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to show you how detailed God is. It's fascinating to me. Verse 13, I heard a holy one speaking, and the holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. 2,300 days is given from the time of this hostile takeover to the time when the temple is cleansed. Now, the problem you have is that the word days in the Hebrew language is literally Erev Boker, or evening and mornings. And since it refers to the sacrifices of the temples, which took place when? Every morning and every evening. It could be that he's speaking about 1,150 days instead of 2,300. You just cut it in half. Now, what's fascinating is you could take either date and you'd come up with an amazing thing. You could take 2,300 days, and you could start when Antiochus Epiphanes started his atrocities against the Jewish people, which was September 6th, 171 B.C. Count 2,300 days, you get December 25th, 165 B.C., 2,300 days later, the temple was rededicated. Or you could take the date, December 15th, 168 B.C., 165 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes forbid the worship in the temple of Jerusalem, and you could count 1,150 days, it comes to the same date, December 25th, when the temple was rededicated. Either way, on those exact dates, as predicted, the temple was cleansed by those that God raised up. Now, I want to add to the intrigue. We covered something that happened historically. Antiochus Epiphanes, a beast who persecuted the Jews. The Jews have always called this the abomination of desolation. The problem you have is Jesus comes on the scene years later and speaks of the abomination of desolation as something future. Matthew 24. He predicts the future, talks about the tribulation. He says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let him who reads understand. Flee Judea. He spoke of it as a future event. 
Now you put it all together and this is what you have. A tale of two beasts. A horn out of the Grecian Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, hates the Jews, desecrates the temple. He becomes a model of a future beast that we've already talked about in previous studies, the Antichrist. What makes it frightening is that when he comes, and I believe it's possible he's alive at this moment, when this Antichrist, this dictator, comes on the scene, he will be the answer that people have been looking for. He'll come up with a peace plan between the Arabs and the Jews and make a covenant with the Jewish people to rebuild their temple. And everybody will think, this guy is awesome. All the governments of the world are wretched, but this guy is awesome. I think we're set up for that right now. More and more, people in different parts of the world mistrust their governments. They don't trust them anymore. There's a book, a secular book called The Day America Told the Truth by two secular authors. And in one part of the book, he tells this little story. He says there's a professor of the university teaching a Sunday school class for adults just a few years back. That included bankers, business executives, university professors. He asked them in the Sunday school class a question based on a then-recent event. He said, We've heard on the news that an Iranian ship has been sunk in the Persian Gulf. The Iranian government says it was sunk by the American torpedoes. The U.S. government says the ship hit Iranian mines. Whom do you believe? The class was silent. Nobody answered. Everyone wanted more information before deciding what they thought had happened. Not one person in that class trusted their own government to tell the truth. They had as much trust in the government of Iran as in the government of the United States. Now, the sad part is when this future dictator comes on the scene, and he comes at first schmoozing the crowds, making a peace covenant, and everybody hails him, saying, peace, peace. He will then act just like Antiochus Epiphanes. He'll go into Jerusalem and desecrate the temple, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. Paul the Apostle predicted what it would be like about this Antichrist in Second Thessalonians when he wrote, He opposes and will exalt himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Oh, he won't say, worship Jupiter. He'll say, worship me. And that will be the second abomination of desolation that Jesus predicted, of which Antiochus becomes but a shadow. All right, that's the vision. That's the interpretation. Let's look at Daniel's reaction. And I, Daniel, verse 27, fainted. Can you blame him? And was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Why was he sick? Because he saw what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. Now, at that point, Daniel didn't understand it. At the point that you are reading it, you do understand it. Because Antiochus Epiphanes has already come and gone And Jesus and John the Apostle and Paul have filled in all of the necessary data about what's coming in the future. So as we read prophecy, the coming Antichrist, prophecy fulfilled in Antiochus, and Jesus Christ, who's actually mentioned at the end of verse 25, it says, He shall be broken without human means. That can't refer to Antiochus, because he was defeated by the Hasmonean priests. 
He will be broken without human means, and it applies to the future. What should our reaction be? And this is where I want to leave you this morning. As you read Daniel, as we go through these studies of prophecy and these visions, and we see what has been fulfilled, what should the reaction of the church today be to the prophecies of Daniel? Well, number one, confidence in God. Four things I'm going to give you. First of all, confidence in God. God knows the future. God predicts the future in such a detailed fashion like no one else. It's been said, you may not know what tomorrow holds, but you know who holds tomorrow. Boy, I read the book of Daniel. Every time I read it, I go, God, I can trust you. The details that you have predicted before they happen in graphic detail. It's amazing. I can trust you with my life. All the little details about your life that you think nobody's concerned about. God is concerned about them. The Bible says God will perfect that which concerns you. Yeah, but does God care about this little insignificant thing? Yes. It's not insignificant to Him. Just as God predicted the future of Alexander and Antiochus, God knows your future. God holds your future. And things don't take Him by surprise. He reads a headline in USA Today as if He would have to. He didn't go, whoa, that happened? Out of control. He knew all about Alexander, all about Cyrus, all about Antiochus Epiphanes. He knows all about the Antichrist. He knows history from the beginning before it happens. And you're worried about paying the rent. You're in God's hands. Have you trusted Him with it? Every little detail. God, Jesus said, the hairs of your head are numbered. And that changes from day to day for a lot of us. But God is aware of them. God cares. God knows. God knows if it's a hairpiece or if it's real. But God knows. (laughs) Confidence in God should be your reaction as you study prophecy. You should have another reaction. Cleanness in lifestyle. Cleanness in lifestyle. You know, there is a relationship between knowing prophecy and holy living. Did you know that? There's always a relationship. When John wrote his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, he said every person who has the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ purifies himself even as he is pure. You know what? All the prophecies have been fulfilled for Jesus Christ to come. He could come at any moment. That does something to you. It keeps you on your toes watching and waiting, doesn't it? In a good sense. I remember as a kid... My mom would always use my dad coming home in the afternoon as sort of her ultimate clout, if you will. I'd push her buttons, I'd disobey. She'd always say about 2, 3 o'clock, your dad will be home in an hour. That's all it took. (laughs) Dad is coming. I want to be ready for dad, not in the bad way. I don't want judgment. I want a homecoming. I want a good welcome for him. I want him to be pleased when I come home. Cleanness of lifestyle. There's a third reaction you ought to have reading prophecy. Comfort in sorrow. Comfort in sorrow. I know that right now I'm addressing people who have lost friends, sons, daughters, husbands, wives in death. But when you know what God has planned for those loved ones in Christ and for those of you who are in Christ, you'll be reunited with them. That's why Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. One of his purposes was to use the coming of Jesus Christ to comfort the early Christians who had lost friends and loved ones to death. 
Wherefore, comfort one another, he said with these words. Jesus is coming. He'll take you in the air. You'll be reunited with your loved ones. It should comfort us. I'm going to see that person again. We're going to hang out together on the streets of heaven. A man lost his wife to death. The pastor of the church found out about it, put his arm around him. He said, I'm so sorry I heard you lost your wife. The widower said, you don't understand. You don't lose something when you know where it is. I know where she is, and I know that I will be with her again in glory. It comforts us in sorrow. You should have another reaction when you study prophecy. A cleanness of lifestyle, comfort in sorrow, a confidence in God, as we already discussed, but finally, conviction for service. Don't you think seeing all of these things that have already taken place, and you know, you know, if God fulfilled all of those things, surely He's going to fulfill all of these things. That should cause us, knowing that Jesus Christ could come at any time, to get busy. There's people who don't know Him who need to know Him. And if we don't tell them, they will never know. God, help us that we don't become like those two lepers who were outside the Syrian gate in the Old Testament. And they came into the camp of the Syrians and there was the food and the silver and the gold and they started indulging. And one of them said, you know what? What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news and yet we remain silent. Got to tell others about this good news. It gives us conviction for service. In other words, we look back on all that God has done. We look forward to all that God is going to do. Not only the Antichrist, but Jesus Christ coming. And we have stability in an unstable world. Every now and then I'll hear an unbeliever come and say, Christianity is a crutch. And I'll agree with them. Say, yeah, you're right. But it's very trustworthy. It won't break. In fact, let me go a step further. It's a stretcher. I'm not just leaning on him. I'm dependent completely upon him. Then I'll say, friend, what do you trust? What's your crutch? When you find out that you've got four weeks to live because you have cancer, or you hear that your wife died, or something happened to your friend, or the economy falls, what do you do? What do you lean on? I've got something stable, provable by history. A detailed God who is sovereign over the world, who cares about me. C.S. Lewis reminds us that all of us approach the future at the same rate. 60 minutes every hour, 60 seconds every minute, we all approach the future, no matter who you are, at the same rate. But what kind of a future is it? I've got to tell you, I've read the last chapter of the book. It's going to turn out all right if you're a believer. If you are a believer. If you are not, I encourage you to read it and see the other scenario that is projected for those who reject God's solution for their sin. The vision, the interpretation, the reaction. I get jazzed when I read the book of Daniel. I serve a detailed, loving creator. Have you submitted your life into his hands? If you haven't, you are missing the boat. You're missing his love. It's time to do so. Father, we conclude by thanking you by showing us who you are and demonstrating for us your sovereign omniscience, your ability 
and your love for us by giving us such incredible detail before it happens so that we might know that indeed there is a God in heaven who rules in the affairs of men, who delights in ruling in the affairs of individuals. And I pray that each one of us this morning would surrender our lives to this sovereign, powerful God who knew about history before it happened, who knows about our lives before things happen, and who wants to make sure that we make it from heaven to earth or from earth to heaven to be in eternity with you, reunited with those who have died in Christ. I pray, Lord, that our reaction to this book would be excitement, confidence in you. In Jesus' name.